Good morning. So good to see you this morning. Before we get started, I want to make a plug for one of my favorite weeks of the year, and that is June the 6th through the 11th here at Oldham Lane. That is when we conduct our annual preacher training camp. It's time to start registering for that. We have limited space available. If you don't know about preacher training camp, that is a week where we take young men ages 14 through 18 who want to preach or are interested in leadership. Uh, maybe they're not thinking of going into preaching as a full-time vocation, but as we tell them, you may marry someone who takes you to a faraway land where you have to lead singing and serve communion and preach and do all those things. And and we want to prepare our young men for that and for the next generation. And so we spend a week doing that and having a lot of fun doing it. And it all culminates on Sunday, going to various churches in our area and preaching a short lesson. Uh, I promise it's not as scary as it seems. And all of our kids do really, really well. So it's $50. There are scholarships available, so don't let money hinder you from coming. But we'd love to see our own folks there. We also take kids from all over the United States that come here to go through this week. So be thinking about that. Uh, get ready to sign up so you can assure your spot on the roster. So how many of you have seen the movie The Blind Side? Remember this movie? So it's about a wealthy Christian family who takes in a homeless young man and helps him reach his full potential. Now, the young man's name is Michael Orr, and not only did he reach his full potential, he became a first-round draft pick by the Baltimore Ravens of the National Football League. But I had the opportunity, along with my wife, a few years ago to listen to this story as told by Leanne Tui, who was the woman who, along with her husband, took in Michael Orr. My wife and I went to listen to her speak, and she talked about how on that fateful morning in November, it was really cold, and she saw Michael Orr walking down the street in shorts and a t-shirt, and she said, I told my husband two words. Just two words, turn around. And she said, those two words changed our life. Those two words changed Michael's life. And you know what, folks? Those two words change our lives as well. Turn around. That's where it all begins for fallen humanity, right? Of course, it starts with faith, but one of the ways that that faith expresses itself is in turning around. When we turn our car around, the car that is our life, when we turn that car around and head in a godly direction, we begin an exciting new journey. And do you know what we call this? We have a rather theological word for it. We call this repentance. That's what repentance is. It's, it's a change of direction. It's turning around. And no matter what your situation is, a marvelous story of profound change is just two words away. So this morning we're starting a new series that I hope will help us to better identify who we are in Jesus. We know it already, but I think it would do us well to, to rehearse some of the things that are associated with living a new existence and this new identity that we have in Christ. So we're calling it the reborn identity. And throughout the next few weeks, we're going to look at the different re-words in the Bible. And there's a bunch of them. Regeneration, renewal, rejoice, remember. 
There's a bunch of re-words that are associated with our new identity in Christ, and we're going to talk about those over the next few weeks, but we start this morning with the re-word of repentance. Did you know that repentance is not just a religious word? Actually, the word repentance was associated with nomadic tribes living in the desert. They would wander around and without any landmarks or significant points to, to, to kind of keep track of which way they were going, they would sometimes realize they were going in a wrong direction, and so they would repent. They would turn around. And that's kind of what we do, isn't it? That's kind of who we are. We are nomads living in a foreign land, and at times we need to change direction. As we try to make our way through the darkness without, you know, we lose sight of the proper landmarks. And so we've got to change direction. We've got to find that light in the darkness that's going to lead us in the proper way. And, you know, it's hard for us guys to change direction, isn't it? It's hard for us to even admit that we're lost. I like to call it directionally challenged. But so often we as men don't like to realize or recognize that we are lost. You think about it, guys. You ever been on a trip with your wife, and though they don't have any idea where you're going or, or what way you're traveling, you know in your heart of hearts that you're lost. Now, imagine turning to your wife and looking her in the eye and saying, Honey, uh, I don't know where I'm at. You would never do that. You would take an ice pick to the eye before you would do that, right? But that's what it takes to turn around, to truly have change in your life. Before there's repentance, there is a realization, there is a recognition that we are not traveling in the right direction, that we are going the wrong way. That's where it all starts with a big wrong way sign that we see, that we recognize in our hearts, and therefore we change course. Look with me at Psalm 32, starting in verse 1. It says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. Remember, Selah means pause, reflect, meditate. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin, Selah. David really brings out some key features of repentance here in this psalm. Number one, he acknowledges his sin. He refused to cover it up. He was determined to confess his transgressions. He held nothing back. There was no cutting corners by David, no compromise, no excuses, no rationalizations, no pointing the finger, no blame shifting. And what was the result? David said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you, God, forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, turn over to another contrite prayer of David, one we know very well, Psalm 51. Starting in verse 1, it reads, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now, granted, David's actions were deplorable. His sin with Bathsheba, killing Uriah, no doubt that was bad. 
But let's give him some credit here, right? Because he does own his sin. He comes to the realization that he is wrong and he owns it. He saw that big wrong way sign that said turn around and he acknowledged it. In verse 4 he states, against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Well, wait a minute. Did he really only sin against God? I mean, didn't he sin with Bathsheba? He certainly sinned against Uriah. How did he only sin against God? Well, because any sin, no matter how egregious, is first and foremost a sin against a holy God. It is a personal affront to the character of a holy God. God fashioned us in His image. He has instructed us on how to live in harmony with one another. He is the author of morality. Therefore, any transgression that stands in direct conflict with His holy will is a personal affront to Him. And that's why David says, against you and you only I have sinned. Because that's where you start, right? Let's keep, keep reading. Verse 7. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. The word purify here is really interesting because it comes from the Hebrew word chata, and it is the root of the word sin, and it carries with it the idea of being desinitized. David is requesting that God remove all of the consequences of his sin, the guilt, the shame, the smell, and the stain. The imagery here is of the ritualistic cleansings that we read about in the Old Testament. Hyssop was a familiar herb that was used as an applicator, especially in the cleansing of lepers. Hyssop along with water was sprinkled upon the unclean during the process of cleansing that was conducted by the priest. And so when David asked God to cleanse him, to make him whiter than snow, he is referring to the purification rituals of the priest. He's he's asking God to act as priest and to purify him, to make him whiter than snow. Because sin brings dirtiness and defilement. David is using these different terms to show the depth of his humiliation and of his contrition, the nature of his sin, the blackness of his heart, and the sincerity of his repentance. When he states, let the bones you have broken rejoice, he is admitting that the only way he can be made whole again is with God's help. Bones refers to the totality of his being. And broken bones is a figurative way of David saying that he is devastated. He is suffering mentally, physically, emotionally, and certainly he was suffering spiritually. He asked God to to put all the broken pieces of his life back together to fashion a new man. David wants to distance himself from his transgressions. He longs to to, to make a clean break from his sin, and so he pleads with God to turn his face away from his sins and to look upon him in purity once again. He's hoping that God will wipe away every sin from his life and strike it from the record. And then notice what else he says. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, notice that, and sustain me with a willing spirit. David is seeking a new heart. Only through forgiveness can he start anew with a determined or steadfast spirit. Now, the word create here is 
also interesting. In the Hebrew, it's the word bara, and it, po- it points to the action that only God can take. David knows that God, that God is the only one who can heal him and make him whole. And he asked him not to cast him away from his presence, not to take his Holy Spirit from him, because David had seen that happen, hadn't he? He had seen the Holy Spirit be removed from Saul's life. He'd even experienced that removal in his own life. He doesn't want to live apart from God's Spirit. Doesn't want to live apart from God. David longed for the presence of God as we all should. And then I love, I absolutely love what he states in verses 13 and 14. He says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. David says, I'm ready to get back to work. Heal me, make me whole, God. Renew me. And I'll get back to work. I'll teach transgressors your way. I'm willing to go out and be an ambassador for you because converted sinners make the best preachers, right? We as people should know all about grace and mercy and forgiveness because we have experienced it in our own lives. Who better to tell the story than us? We are the best ambassadors for grace and mercy. Every time we gather as the church, we give people a front row seat to the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. We show people how to be made whole. David was ready to get back to work. Even though he had been traveling the highway to hell, he was now climbing the stairway to heaven. You see, here's what troubles me about repentance. It's often connected to negativity. You think about it, repentance always seems to carry a negative connotation. We kind of present repentance as a do this or else proposition. We connect it with hell. And maybe that's okay in some cases because if you don't repent, then obviously there's, you know, drastic spiritual consequences. But rather than connecting repentance with hell, we need to be connecting repentance with heaven. Because that's what it's all about. A change of mind, a change of will, a change of direction. You go back to the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 26, beginning in verse 40, it reads, If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land, for the land will be abandoned by them and will make up for its Sabbaths while it is made desolate without them, They, meanwhile, will be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet, in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord." These are the statutes and ordinances and laws which the Lord established between himself and the sons of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. I think many people kind of view God as one who hopes that people don't repent so he can torch them for all eternity. And that's not how God operates. From the very beginning, God has wanted a relationship with his people. And he has done everything possible to have that relationship. 
Remember what Peter wrote. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God doesn't desire for you to go to hell. That's what we talked about on Wednesday night. Quite the contrary, God wants you to be with him for all eternity, and he'll love you all the way to hell if that's what you choose, right? That's why he gave Israel mulligan after mulligan. That's why he waits now. That's why he is waiting right now to give people the opportunity to turn back. Time change, now we have the bells off. That's what you're hearing. That does not mean my time is up, Charles. God has always wanted a relationship with his people. He made you. He created you. He sent his son to die for you. And he created the concept of repentance because he wants a relationship with his creation. In Eugene Peterson's book, Run With Horses, he tells the story of the frustration of trying to remove the blade from his lawnmower so he could sharpen it. He says these words, He said, I was in my backyard with my lawnmower tipped on its side. I was trying to get the blade off so I could sharpen it. I had my biggest wrench attached to the nut but couldn't budge it. I got a four-foot length pipe and slipped it over the wrench handle to give me leverage, and I leaned on that, still unsuccessfully. Next, I took a large rock and banged on the pipe. By this time, I was beginning to become emotionally involved with my lawnmower. I've been there. Then my neighbor walked over and said that he had a lawnmower like mine once and that if he remembered correctly, the threads on the bolt went the other way. He said, I reversed my exertions and sure enough, the nut turned easily. I was so glad to find that I was wrong. I was saved from my frustration and failure, but I never would have gotten the job done no matter how hard I had tried doing it on my own. That, my friends, is another mistake we make When it comes to repentance, we think it's all about trying harder. You just try harder. Just pull yourself up by the bootstraps, right? You sin, you just got to do better, right? You will never do this on your own. Repentance is not about trying. It's about training. David said, create me a clean heart, O God, because he knew that God was the only one who could fix the situation. Listen to what else he says. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It was just about doing something. If that were the case, David could offer a sacrifice. He could give an offering. But it was about more than that. It was about God getting involved. When I was growing up, I would go to the priest And I would confess my sins to him. And he would give me penance. Three Our Fathers, three Hail Marys, three Glory Bees. That was what I would do to be forgiven. But there's a couple of problems with that, right? Number one, I didn't offend the priest. I didn't sin against the priest. I sinned against a holy God. And number two, just saying prayers isn't what it's about. It's about more than that. It's not just about trying harder. It's not just about doing something. It's about training. It's not just about pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. Okay, I'll go to church more. I'll read my Bible more. I'll pray more. Take it from David. It starts with being, not doing. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is about training, not trying. Come broken, come contrite, come ready to let God transform you, right? Now, there is a sense in which we must all do something. We know that. We know that repentance is not passive. There is a sense in which we must do something. However, I'm sure you've noticed that your won't power is a whole lot stronger than your willpower. So it's not just about trying harder. Some need to do more, no doubt. However, this is not just about trying harder. David knew that. He knew that the only way that he could be renewed and restored was by going to the source. However, David also recognized that repentance bears fruit. So, I'm forgiven, I go out and I teach others, I get back to work, right? There's a change, and change produces fruit. Sometimes that change requires drastic measures. I believe when we talk about the response to the gospel that we sometimes call the plan of salvation, I believe the hardest part in all of that is repentance. That may be the hardest part, right? And sometimes that requires drastic measures. Sometimes you need to change your playmates and change your playground. Sometimes we need to change our environment. We need to change who we hang out with, who we listen to. Sometimes it's as simple as changing your playmates and changing your playground. I, when I was coaching, I was always drawn to the kids that were on the margins. The kids that always had problems and issues. And at the little school I was in, it was in a rural uh, uh, setting. It was considered a rural district in, in Arkansas. Um, I was a substitute bus driver. I, I drove a bus dropping kids off in the afternoon, and I went 17 miles without touching pavement. It was a very rural school district. And when it's rural and there's nothing to do, a lot of times you get into trouble. And so I was attracted to those kids that were always in trouble, that, that, that needed some guidance and direction. You know, sometimes basketball doesn't need you, but you need basketball or, or whatever the sport is. And there were some kids like that. I felt like if I could just get them roped into playing sports, it would keep them in school, invested. You know, maybe they would try with their, with their grades. Maybe they would stay in and not drop out because we had a lot of kids drop out. So there was this one particular young man named Teddy. Teddy was a good kid, but he was one of those kids that was born behind the eight ball, if you know what I mean. Trouble seemed to find him, and it was all because of his environment. At least part, I say all of it. He had a choice to make as well, but I mean, he really needed to change his playmates and change his playground. So I, I was drawn to Teddy, and I asked Teddy, I said, you know, why don't you come out and play basketball? I knew he was on the brink of dropping out of school. You know, his grades weren't good. I said, I'll work with you. Just, just come out and play ball for me. I knew he had some athletic ability. I don't know how much he would help us, but I knew that this would help him. And so I asked him to come play, and he dropped his head. He said, Coach, uh, I'd love to, but I can't pass a drug test. Now, you can disagree with me and think less of me if you want, but I told Teddy, I said, let's not worry about that right now. I'm going to take you where you're at. And I'm not going to leave you there, okay? We'll work on all the other stuff. You just come out, and we'll start a schedule, working out, a training regimen. We're going to get you fully invested because I wanted to change his playmates and change his playground. The kids that I had that year were all kids that went to church. They were great kids. 
So I knew that would be a good influence on him. I wish I could tell you that this had a Disney ending. Like remember the Titans or something. That's not what happened. Teddy came out and he did okay for a while, but eventually he couldn't hang. I asked him one time, I said, Teddy, why do you want to do this to yourself? Why do you want to do this? Why why do you want to run your life at such a young age? And he said, Coach, it's it's not about wanting to stop. He said, "I, I can't. He said, I'm so deep into this, I I don't even know how to get out of it. It's kind of the whole tear out your eye and cut off your hand kind of thing, isn't it? Sometimes we've got to be willing to amputate some things from our lives. We've got to be willing to change our playmates and change our playground if need be. Because while it's not just about trying harder, it is about this. It is about how bad do you want it. How bad do you want it? How bad do you want heaven? How bad do you want a relationship with God? How bad do you want repentance so that you can be right with God? Because it's a change of mind, a change of will, a change of direction, a change of heart. This isn't about just doing some pious things. It's about a whole lot more than that. This is not not about making minor adjustments to your life. This is about a wholesale change. You have to be receptive. You must be willing to change your playmates and change your playground. And understand that repentance is not a one-time step. That's why I have a little bit of a problem with this. And I don't think it's a horrible strategy to employ this, but I just I have problems with it because it treats the response to the gospel as if these are steps that you do one and you leave it behind, you move to the other and you move to the other, and that's just not so. It's not like you, you have faith and say, okay, I'm good there, now I step up to the next one. I go to repentance, okay, I'm good there, I've repented, now I step up to to confession. Okay, I confess before baptism, now I'm on to to being baptized. The only one of these that's a a one-time step, if done properly, is baptism. But the rest of these, guess what? You do them the rest of your life. The rest of your life. There's never a time when you leave faith and move on to something else. You always have faith. You always repent. You will always be repenting as a response to faith. You will always be confessing Jesus as a response to faith. Over and over again, you will do these things. They mark the life of a disciple. So when we talk about training versus trying, we're talking about something that is similar to maybe losing weight. Not to offend anyone here. But when we talk about losing weight, often we want to take a pill or drink a shake. And the experts will tell you the only way to really lose weight and to keep it off is a lifestyle change, right? Eat right and exercise. Who wants to do that? Not me. I want to be able to eat all the bluebell I want. Is there a diet for that? Where you just eat bluebell? We want easy. We want maximum results with minimum effort. But the only way we're going to get there is through a lifestyle change. Shift gears and let's talk spiritually. The only way we're going to get there spiritually is by having a lifestyle change. Being willing to change our playmates and change our playground. Being willing to amputate some things in our lives. Being willing to completely change direction to turn our current world upside down, to sacrifice whatever, 
Because it's about wanting it. How bad do you want it? That's really what it comes down to. Remember the quote that I gave you a few years ago by A.W. Tozer? I'm sure you do. But A.W. Tozer said, every man is as close to God as he wants to be. You think about that for a second. Every person is as close to God as they want to be. And you say, well, I just, I wish I were closer to God. I just want to be closer to Him. No, you don't. You don't. Because if you wanted it, you would be closer to Him. You are currently as close to God right now as you want to be. Your effort is showing that. How close do you want to be to God? How bad do you want this? There was a preacher who uh, had a young man come and visit him. This young man was very distraught, much like David. He was in a situation where he felt like he was at rock bottom, and he needed he needed some help, some guidance. He said, I, I just, I can't see a way out of this. I've got all these cobwebs in my life. And he said, I've tried over and over again to remove the cobwebs, but to no avail. And the preacher said, that's your problem. Quit trying to remove the cobwebs and kill the spider. It's good advice for all of us. Do you need to kill the spider this morning? If you do, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?